The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from James 2, 1-17. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not made, then made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Graham. Good morning, everybody. Happy summer. It's good to be with you. And uh, we are uh, today at number six of a seven-part series that we're calling Doubting Christianity. And we're engaging several of the questions and concerns that people who don't identify as Christians have with Christianity and also with Christians. And today's question that we're engaging is, haven't Christians hurt a lot of people? The question is rhetorical, and the assumed answer is yes by those who ask the question. And uh, if you go back to uh, the year 1930, uh, it's around the Second World War, British atheist, humanist, and philosopher Bertrand Russell said that the reason why war exists is because of religion. And specifically, those old, you know, archaic doctrines of sin and punishment and judgment. By the way, that's next week's topic, the, the whole subject of, of judgment and can, can there be a God for whom both judgment and love coexist. Um, but for this week, Bertrand Russell said, because of those doctrines, religious people are aggressive and mean 
and angry and oppositional and, and war happens because of it. And, and what Russell said is that religion is like a dragon. And what we need to do in order to have a peace-loving society is to just slay the dragon. Now, anybody who is awake has to acknowledge that Bertrand Russell had a point because from every major world religion or at least those claiming to identify with with every major world religion there has been cruelty and violence done in the presumed name of God Uh, in the name of Islam bombs have detonated and killed civilians towers have been demolished Uh, beheadings have happened uh, in the service of God presumably Uh, There is also Buddhism, 17th century Japan in particular, and the mass persecution of Christians by Shinto Buddhist governments. There's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we're all certainly aware of. Uh, And by the way, atheism as well, Uh, and especially movements that that are sympathetic to or, or based upon the theories behind Marxism. Uh, can also claim their own fair share of shed blood. China has killed 77 million of their own citizens as a government. Soviet Union has killed some 62 million. In Cambodia, 2 million citizens. In Vietnam, 1.7 million, and so on. The political scientist R.J. Rummel says that of all religions, secular and otherwise, and it's very interesting that he, he calls... Marxism a religion. And then he calls atheism a religion because a religion is the organizing principle through which you see the world uh, and around which you organize your life. But Rummel says of all religions, secular and otherwise, Marxism has by far been the bloodiest. Terrorism, deadly purges, lethal, lethal prison camps, murderous forced labor, fatal deportations, man-made famines, extrajudicial executions and fraudulent show trials, outright mass murder and genocide. Okay, so that's a little bit of an overview. But our job today is not to talk about other religions and what other religions have done. Our job today is to try to make sense of what has happened in the name of Christianity and and specifically the things that have caused people who don't identify as Christians to ask the questions the question, haven't Christians hurt a lot of people? The answer is yes. We have to be honest about this. We have to engage it. And I'd like to do that under three headings. First, the realities for which Christians must give an answer if we're going to have any integrity in these kinds of conversations. Some of the answers, and then the ultimate answer. And so let's talk first about the reality, the realities for which Christians really have to give an answer. It's a valid question. The presenting issue in James, and I, I so appreciated Michael's emphasis on this in his prayer a moment ago as well, is partiality or favoritism. And in the early church, early Christians were demonstrating favoritism, we're told in this text, toward the rich, the powerful, the noteworthy, celebrities, VIPs, divas. We get special treatment. And as a result of that, a byproduct was that there was another group of people that were being neglected and mistreated and dishonored. 
You know, James says, you are, by showing favoritism toward, toward those in power and with privilege, you are dishonoring the poor. How were they doing that? Well, James says, isn't it the rich who oppress people and who drag the poor to court? So, a little bit of historical background. In Jewish law, if there were a court trial that was going to happen and let's say the plaintiff was a rich person and the defendant was a poor person or vice versa, in a Jewish court of law, all parties had to be presented as being equal from an optics standpoint. And what that meant was that the court, the Jewish court, said to the rich person, Either you dress down and wear similar clothes that, that the poor person that you're, you're standing against is wearing, or you buy them clothes as nice as yours so that, so that you can appear as equals in the court. And, and a rich person was not allowed to stand at a higher level uh, or sit at, at a bench that was elevated higher than a poor person. Everything was equal so that objective judgments could be made. Essentially, they removed as much as they could the potential for partiality in a Jewish court. They tried to protect the poor from the diva factor. But what James is saying is, you're not acting like good Jews or faithful Christians in the way that you treat one another even inside the church. Instead, you're acting like Rome. You, he says, are judging with evil. You're becoming judges with evil thoughts. So in Rome, the way things worked under the Roman government and in Roman courts was a poor person wasn't even allowed to bring a charge against a rich person. There was, there was incredible partiality. The system was rigged to favor those with money, those with power, those with privilege, and, and of course those without those things got injured in Rome. And what James is saying is you're acting just like the world. There's no discernible difference between how the church is treating people than there is how Rome is treating people, and that's not right. And so, a few ways that, um, that, though, that people in the name of Christ have uh, resembled what James is confronting here. There's a history, there's some news, and there's some disappointment. The first is a history, a history of violence done in the name of Christ, claiming the name of Christ. You know, history is filled, and we learned all this, no matter where you went to school, you, you learned this in elementary school and in high school and, and so on. History is filled with people who slap the name Christian on things that nauseate Christ. History is filled with examples. The Crusades are perhaps one of the most famous uh, examples of this where, where people identifying as Christians forced Christianity or tried to force Christianity on peace-loving Eastern Muslims. Tens of thousands of people killed in the name of Christ, supposedly, for not converting to Christianity. You take a look at what ISIS has done in the last 15 or so years, reverse the religions, and you get what was happening in the Crusades. Christian, presumably Christian aggression and violence against Muslims in the Crusades, and, and even women and children were major casualties of that. You look at Northern Ireland in the 20th century and the, 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 the long-standing conflicts between you know, Protestant and Catholic 
uh, traditions, and, and you've got people just, just in the name of Christ, supposedly, just violent toward one another. Over 3,500 people were killed during those years. The Rwandan genocide in 1994, death toll around 800,000 people, and so many people in Rwanda who were part of those conflicts and, and aggressors in those conflicts identified as Christian. African slave trade, or people throughout history. By the way, I've never heard of a black church or a black person who's, who, who, who would say that the Bible defends slavery. I've never heard of a slave or read a, a book or, or an essay by a slave who, who, who agrees that the Bible defends slavery. It was only people who benefited from sla- the institution of slavery that, 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 that would say, well, the Bible uh, says that slavery is a good thing. See, so, so the, you know, the African slave trade and all the, 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 the injury that took place as a result of that, including in our own city, people using the Bible to justify horrific behaviors. Anti-Semitism, there's a huge history of that. Recent shootings, are in the, quote-unquote, in the name of Christ, uh, are, are, a, are a blight to the name of Christianity. Hitler's Germany is perhaps the most famous. So, um, you may not know this, but, 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 but Germany leading up to World War II was Christian majority. The vast majority of people in, 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 in Germany uh, named Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Nazis endorsed uh, what they called positive Christianity. Positive Christianity, and here's what they meant by this. What will make Christianity a positive thing is if we rebrand Jesus into a well-groomed, white, blonde, blue-eyed Aryan. And that's what they did. And and they cut off all of the the Israel-positive, Jewish-positive material in the Bible itself, and they came up with a new Bible. Hitler actually is quoted as saying, I can imagine Christ as nothing other than blonde and with blue eyes. The devil, however, has a Jewish grimace. You know, in Germany, they revised the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in the public schools, the government-sponsored schools, they would begin every day in homeroom citing the Lord's Prayer but, but replacing the words, Our Father, with Our Führer. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who famously opposed Hitler uh, and publicly opposed Hitler and lost his life as a result of that, was actually a minority among, uh, among German pastors in his opposition to Hitler because most German uh, pastors claiming Christ both bought and sold Hitler's lies. They were actually more part of the problem than they were part of the solution because they were seduced by national pride, seduced by power, and so on. So there's that. There's history that we have to answer for. There's also news about Christian ministers. You you, you may have read uh, the latest uh, in a long list recently of of pastors, megachurch pastors who've lost their ministries, this particular one from Illinois, uh, he was called out, has been called out for years for, for bullying, uh, recently uh, was caught on, on an audio recording uh, suggesting very strongly that, 
pornography be planted on somebody's computer who was one of his critics so that they would get caught and lose their job. They were a journalist. And then most recently, two separate witnesses came forward and said that this pastor asked them directly to help him find a hitman. One to kill one of his critics and another to kill his former son-in-law. Now, these are all alleged, but doesn't look good. Now, in my world, I went through an 18-month period a few years ago where five of my friends, people I know, people who I've been in life with, people whose ministries have made a difference in my life, Five pastors that I know personally lost their ministries because of infidelity, bullying, stole money, or some other moral failure, some combination of the above. So there's news about Christian ministers. We've got to answer for that. And then there's disappointment with Christian individuals. So, so verse 8, James says that the royal law of God that, that we must contend with especially in the public eye, is the law that says love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 14, what good is our faith if it's not accompanied by works and so on. And, and, and this, this, this lack of love uh, has manifest in, in two specific ways. One you could call nominalism, another you could, another you could call fanaticism. So nominalism is, is when we present ourselves as Christian in name only. So the great Baptist uh, British minister Charles Haddon Spurgeon looked at his very large congregation uh, one Lord's Day and said to them, said to them, I suspect that only 20% of you are actually Christians because the Christianity that you profess is making no functional difference in your actual life. And that's what's going on in this rich-poor dynamic that, that James is confronting. There are people inside the church who are behaving no differently than Rome. So that's nominalism, but there's also fanaticism. This is kind of the jerks for Jesus dynamic that, that some have expressed frustrations about. You know, Tim Keller talks about two kinds of fanatics. I think this is a really helpful uh, delineation between the two. He says, he says fanatics can be overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they aren't Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, and understanding as Christ was. Fanatics are not this way because they are too committed to the gospel. They are this way because they are not committed enough to the gospel. It's the wrong kind of fanaticism. You're fanatical about things that, that Christ repudiates. Okay, so, all right, that's a really discouraging stuff, right? But are we in agreement that, we, that the credibility of our witness requires us to engage with these things and acknowledge these realities? rather than get defensive and, and pretend that, that this stuff never happened or never happens. To have integrity, we have to are we in agreement that we have to acknowledge these things? Here are some of the answers. You know, to the question, you know, after all of this, why on earth would anybody want to be a Christian? 
Here is the, 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 the umbrella answer because none of the above is Christian. It's not. It's taking the, the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's, it's presuming to represent him in ways that nauseate him. You know, brothers, James says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. How was the Lord's glory manifest most openly and clearly? It's when he set aside his glory, made himself nothing. Though he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. You know, even Nietzsche, if we go back to, to the Hitler thing and this whole idea of positive Christianity as Hitler understood it. Even Nietzsche, who was no friend of Christianity, German philosopher, said that Hitler's ideology completely contradicted true Christianity, which has Jewish roots, which is racially inclusive, which embraces people from all nations and tribes and tongues and people groups, which, as we have sung after our confession already this morning, which welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. You know, James, think about this. He is the half-brother of Jesus, and so he grew up with Jesus. Like if anybody knows how Jesus responds, would respond to this kind of stuff, it's James. And, and what he says about his big brother is he has chosen the poor to be rich in the faith. And his mercy is there to triumph over judgment. You know, Jesus could not be more anti-violence. Jesus is the one who said in the most famous sermon ever preached, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute and injure you. It's Jesus who in Luke chapter 7 and John chapter 8 bows up. If you, if you want to see Jesus bowing up and getting aggressive, it's always against religious bullies, it seems. You know, if Jesus is ever susceptible to getting violent, it's with violent religious people. He bows up. One woman's caught in adultery. One is a, a prostitute who's, who's in the first phases of repenting and humbling herself before God. And, and, and the religious people want to get aggressive with both of them. And, and Jesus bows up and defends them both. So Jesus is anti-violence. He's anti-bully. So, you know, just like there's a history of sin, by the way, there's also a history of repentance. There's a history within Christianity of self-correction. And that's actually one of the, the philosophies that, that, that's built into Christianity. It's a religion of self-correction. It's a religion that when it's working properly, actually doesn't need confrontation from the outside. Because, because there's enough confrontation coming from the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, calling us to repent as we engage with the Word of God and so on. You know, the Protestant Reformation is, is, is one season of self-correction where Martin Luther and, and others noticed there were, there were several injustices and there was plenty of partiality going on in the church. And, 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 and so he wrote this kind of list of 95 grievances called the 95 Theses, nailed them on, on the, the, the door of the castle church in Wittenberg and said, enough is enough. We need better, truer, fuller, Christianity. We need less of this and more Christianity. He said that to the church. African slave trade, the whole idea that the Bible supports slaves is a misguided 
idea. And did you know that abolition, both, both in Europe as well as in the United States, the whole abolition movement was initiated and led by followers of Jesus Christ, by people of the Bible, because of what the Bible says, not in spite of what the Bible says, but because of it. Read the book of Philemon. It's all about a slave being set free. Read the book of Leviticus. Yes, read that one, where it talks about the year of Jubilee, where, where, where deaths are forgiven, slaves are set free, and so on. You know, John Newton, a former slave trader, turns Christian, then becomes an activist against the slave trade, gets into the ear of William Wilberforce, a, a, a member of parliament for, who for a long time stood alone speaking against the slave trade, and then eventually his, his persuasive movement gained traction, and an all-white parliament filled with people who owned slaves voted to abolish slavery together. One writer said, Parliament in, a, in, in one full swoop committed econocide. Their entire economy was built on the backs of slave ownership. And so, so, so they, 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 they said, we can't do this anymore because it's wrong, because Jesus both says and demonstra demonstrates it's wrong. It's wrong. You know, Wilberforce, Newton, many of the people in Parliament were driven by Christian conviction. American Civil Rights Movement, you look at King, you look at John Perkins, you look at other key leaders, these are all Christian people. They're Christian people who are appealing to the moral law of God and to the image of God in every person, not for less Christianity, but for truer and deeper Christianity. Some facts about charitable giving. You know, this is, we're still kind of on the, the repentance side of things and the history of self-correction. The facts about char charitable giving are these. People who attend Christian churches give three times, more than three times more than people who do not to charity. It's just a fact. You know, the keeping of the royal law that James talks about in verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself, mercy triumphing over, over judgment. How, how did the early church respond to James' rebuke? All we need to do is look at the state of things at the beginning of the fourth century. As the church had had time to adjust, to read the scriptures, to carefully consider what the half-brother of Jesus and the other apostles were saying about these things, especially rich and poor dynamics. By the fourth century AD, Christians singularly had invented hospitals, had invented welfare systems, had invented orphanages and adoption agencies and the care systems caring for widows, had invented the university, Harvard, Yale, you know, Princeton, etc. Vanderbilt, Belmont, Lipscomb. The university was conceived, the whole idea of the university was conceived by Christians for two reasons. One, to educate the intellect, to teach young people to think for themselves, and number two, to cultivate virtue. These are all things that have been done in the name of Christ and for the sake of Christ. And so, so while there is an appalling aspect of, of, of history where, where Christianity has gone wrong and been poorly, poorly represented by those claiming Christ, there's also a magnificent history of good that's been, been brought into the world, of an anti-violence history within Christianity because of who Jesus is. And so what we need here is a, is a truer, fuller, and more Christianity, not less. And so, so the whole notion that Christians are hypocrites, 
What would you say if I told you that we agree? We couldn't agree with you more. Also core to the message is this, that Christ did not come for good people. He came for sinners. You know, like, like the, the cliche goes, the church of Jesus Christ was never intended to be, a, to, to, to be a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. What makes a person a Christian? Here's a sure sign. You come to God with hands that are empty. And whatever movement you're part of is an inclusion movement that, that welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Even looking at this text included in the people of God, the poor, who should actually especially be elevated according to James. Abraham, who is actually a very rich man and a terrible husband. Read about him. Rahab, who was actually a prostitute. You can read about her. Everyone falls Short. What, what makes Christianity unique is that it compels its people from the inside to, to change, to transform, to, be di- to become different. And it compels its people to take humble ownership, not only for their history, but also for their present and future shortcomings. You know, when we approach, approach the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, you could call it, at Christ's Pres, every now and then, we, we remind each other that this is not just the family meal, it's the dysfunctional family meal. But when you have a whole community and tribe and global movement that embraces this, that tables like this are a dysfunctional family meal, we become better fanatics. We become fanatics who are fanatical about being humble and gentle and kind and empathetic and forgiving and safe. Because these are all the things that Jesus was and is. Which brings us to the ultimate answer. Jesus Christ, James calls him the Lord of glory. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ was God and is God, but he laid aside his glory and made himself nothing. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He became a victim of government violence, of a totalitarian regime called Rome. He died unjustly while he simultaneously begged God to forgive those who were injuring him. He loved his enemies. He prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He turned the other cheek. He bled out and died as a voluntary martyr. And so the idea that true Christianity is violent is actually absurd. Things that have been done falsely in the name of Christ over the course of history and even in the present day, you got a point Bertrand Russell had a point, and that is a dragon that needs to be slayed. Taking the Lord's name in vain by representing him in ways that nauseate him, that is a dragon that needs to be slain. You know, which is why it's also built into Christian belief system that, 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 that our pointing fingers should be pointing in this direction. 
before they're pointing in any other direction. And before we can ever presume to remove specks out of an eye that's somewhere else, we've got to deal with planks and logs in our own. We need to become fanatical about humility and repentance and so on. But the idea that Christianity is, that true Christianity is violent, is, 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 it's just unsupportable. You consider this in closing, this quotation from Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a British intellect and a Christian. She says this, Violence is the use of power by the strong in order to hurt the weak. At the cross, the most powerful man who ever lived submitted to the most brutal death ever died to save the powerless. Christianity does not glorify violence. It humiliates it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our sins, they are many. And your mercy is more. We are grateful, Lord, that as we prepare to approach your table, you welcome at this table the weakest and the vilest and the poor. And it's not lost on us, Lord, that this table exists because of violence. This table speaks to us of a broken body and of shed blood, of the true victim, of the truest victim of violence, you, Jesus. You took it on the chin. You were mistreated. You were made victim by an unjust universe. in order to love us to life, to draw us in, to make us rich in faith, and to protect us from judgment. We give you thanks in your name. Amen.